three, we teach a passage of the Bible. That's what we're going to do this morning as well on Resurrection Sunday. So if you have a Bible there, please turn to John chapter 21 or on your phone. If you've got one of the Bibles out at the back on the table there, we'll be on page 853. Otherwise, it's John chapter 21, and we're going to read in a moment from verse 15 down to verses 19. John 21, 15 to 19. There are particular days in the life of the church when the, the, the subject of, of belief rises to the surface, the subject of belief, whether you believe or not, rises to the surface. You can say any week or any day what we believe matters, but on a Sunday like today, Resurrection Sunday, that there is a more acute awareness that something is at stake. We're either here for a reason that, that matters or we're here for nothing. And what is at stake is either our, our belief or our, our denial in that which is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, which is that Jesus Christ was, was crucified, buried, only to rise from the dead. And so Easter Sunday, it leaves no middle ground. The resurrection leaves no middle ground. Oddly, often, how the, the church in America seems to, to celebrate Easter looks kind of remarkably similar to a kid's birthday party. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's a lot of baby blues, a lot of baby pinks. But despite that, or maybe even because of that, I think Easter can, can, can be an, an uncomfortable time for some. Most weeks we can get by with, with believing certain kind of platitudes that, that, that make Christianity palatable, even to those that maybe don't even identify as followers of Jesus. But at Easter, the question, is, question isn't whether you believe that Christianity is something nice or whether it's, it's, it's neutral or whether it holds any truth. Today, the question is, do you believe that the dead can be raised? And what if Jesus did? What if he did? That is the question Easter asks of us. C.S. Lewis, the, the Oxford professor and author, spent much of his life studying ancient myths and legends. And what was a, a light bulb moment for C.S. Lewis for him was when he, came to believe, when he came to believe in Christianity was when he realized that fairy tales, the, the original stories that inspire our modern versions of Cinderella or The Little Mermaid, rather than being kind of made up magical spins on our human experience. Instead, C.S. Lewis realized that fairy tales were actually far truer than he first gave them credit because he began to see the only difference was that in the fairy tales, he could clearly see the magic. He could see in fairy tales that the magic was, was, was pronounced, the magic, it, it, it stood out. While in our world, he realized he'd simply lost his ability to see it. Until the... the the magic of golden apples in fairy tales gave C.S. Lewis new eyes to see the magic in the existence of green and red apples hanging on the tree outside his window. C.S. Lewis was likely smarter than anybody here, and what brought his guard down in belief was catching glimpses of enough mystery and incredible wonder around him to believe that our reality was in fact the fount of all fairy tales, that we are living the magical fairy tale that is true. And the mysteries and wonders that, that paved the way for C.S. Lewis in his faith to Christ, Virginia Woolf calls little daily miracles. 
illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark, and we've all experienced them. Moments when, when, when mundane reality speaks to us. It calls out in us faith, belief in a deeper reality. I remember a couple of years ago, Ruth, on a very average day, she sent me this photo. It was taken across the street from our home. Some of you know this park, Passion Park, over on Lunt. And when she sent me this photo, I remember, I don't know what kind of day I was having, but I remember when I got this photo on my phone, the first thing I did, I remember just zooming in and looking at Summer and Nora's faces. And you know what welled up in me when I looked at Summer and Nora's faces? Faith. Belief. Wonder. Clarity. You maybe get this when you see a beautiful sunset. You maybe get this when you make this beautiful connection with somebody. Moments of clarity. Clarity that in that moment, nobody would have been able to tell me that nothing exists beyond them. There are days that I might have, have doubts. Days I might wrestle with my faith, but not on that day. And every time I have a, have a moment like this, a moment of clarity, maybe even on a day that I've been struggling, it's Jesus that comes into focus. Jesus captures my heart with clarity. In this photo, I was not astonished by Summer and Nora, but I was astonished that they were kind of shining with a sacredness gifted to them. And it was Jesus that I knew was the gift giver. And as much as this particular moment was, it was a positive one, an enjoyable one, where something beautiful was shining through in the world, I think these moments of clarity, illuminations, or matches struck unexpectedly in the dark, they don't always feel good. When we're called to a deeper reality, illuminations, moments that lead us to clarity can be feelings we would rather shake, but, but we can't. Listen to this passage in a book by Toni Morrison called The, the Bluest Eye. The, the breed loves did not live in a storefront because they were having temporary difficulty adjusting to the cutbacks at the plant. They lived there because they were purr and black, and they stayed there because they believed that they were ugly. Although their poverty was traditional, it was not unique, but their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly. Except for the father, Charlie, whose ugliness was his behavior, the rest of the family, Mrs. Breedlove, Sammy, and Bacola, they wore their ugliness. They put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. You looked at them and wondered why they were so ugly. You looked closely and you could not find a source. Then you realized that it came from conviction, their conviction. It was as though some mysterious, all-knowing master had given each of them a cloak of ugliness to wear and they had each accepted it without question. The master had said, you are ugly people. The breed loves had looked about themselves and saw nothing to contradict the statement. In fact, they could see support from it, leaning at them from every billboard and every movie and every glance. Yes, they had said, you are right. So they took their ugliness in their hands and they threw it as a mantle over themselves and went about the world with it. And I read that because it so well articulates the inability that we all share to shake a feeling 
that we have about ourselves. Whether it be something that is true of us or whether, as in this story, it's something that isn't. And I don't know what this might be for you. Maybe there is something you have done that still unsettles you or something that has been done to you or words that have been said to you that still affect you. Maybe you don't even know where this this mantle of insecurity you throw over yourself even comes from. Or maybe you do know. Maybe it's something that, that most of the time you can suppress, but then other times it overwhelms you. Grief, guilt, shame, regret, fear, failure, loneliness, hopelessness. The question, our passage, which we're about to read, asks of us today, it's very simple. The question is, how do we live with ourselves? How do we live with our worst critic? How do we live with ourselves? After what we have done or experienced or have been broken by or failed to do or failed to become, how do we live with ourselves? And what if or but what if these very feelings that we can't shake are in fact matches struck in the dark, one more grace-filled means of helping us perceive a deeper reality, helping us to bring Jesus into focus. What if Jesus is not only behind the seasons in our lives when we are experiencing the fullness of his presence, but what if he is equally behind the seasons in which we are experiencing the void of his absence? What if who we have failed to become is one more grace-filled means helping us to bring Jesus into focus? Let's read our passage. John chapter 21. We're going to read verse 15. Down to verse 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. God, we come before you, God, on this day, God, and we come with hope stirring in our souls. God, we thank you for this church, these people here, God, that lift us up, that focus our eyes on you. God, I thank you that belief stirs in community, God. That as we believe together, God, we see uh, one another, God, and we see each other in our strugglings and our pain, and we point one another to you. So, God, I pray that as we come to your word, God, your word would lift our eyes from our situation. God, I pray we would lift our eyes from our circumstances and that we would be able to see. Give us eyes to see with clarity today, I pray. In your name, amen. 
Let me give you the, the, the background to the, the passage that we just read, because we're not in a series right now, we're just jumping straight into this passage. A matter of days have passed since Jesus' tomb was found to be empty. Usually a Good Friday sermon builds up to that, and that's the end of the sermon, but I just let the cat out of the bag. The tomb is empty, and this put Jesus' friends and family, as you can imagine, into a little bit of a, a bit of a tailspin. Where did he go? What we find then in John chapters 20 and verse 21 in John's gospel are just a few of the recorded memories of those who seen or spoke with or had an encounter with Jesus after his resurrection. And these stories of encounters with the risen Christ are given as the explanation for the transformation that occurred in the lives of Jesus' friends and, and his disciples. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. It reads like this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We are reading here an explanation for transformation. The vast, vast majority of of Historians across the board, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, believe these three historical facts to be certain, whether Christian or non-Christian. Number one, that Jesus was born, that he lived and died by crucifixion. That Jesus' disciples truly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And thirdly, that many people who weren't previously followers of Jesus came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. So the challenge for historians across the board is finding a theory that best explains these facts. A very small group of historians believe what's called the hallucination theory, based on the fact that people can hallucinate seeing someone that they loved after that person has died. So they say the disciples, maybe, maybe, they, maybe they hallucinated seeing Jesus. The problem is you don't usually hallucinate seeing somebody that you did not like. And the problem is hallucinations don't happen en masse. The second theory, which is believed by an even smaller group, which is a very small group of historians, is the stolen body theory, that the disciples went in and stole Jesus' body and they faked his resurrection. The problem is that this theory doesn't explain the transformation and renewed courage in the lives of the disciples. People don't go on and die for what they believe to be a lie. And that's it. Simply the majority of historians who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus look at the facts and simply say, we don't know what happened. Yet they admit that something must have happened to set ablaze a movement around the world that still reverberates today. In John chapter 20 and 21, we find these eyewitness accounts as a means of explanation as to why thousands of people in a matter of months came to believe that a human being was in fact the risen Son of God, many of whom went on to die for what they believed. Many Christians around the world still do. Something happened in history, and it stole people's fear of death. A Japanese novelist wrote this, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was something other, some some other amazing event, different in kind, yet equal in force in its electrifying intensity. If we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we believed in the resurrection itself. And so what we have in our passage today is a part of the story of one man's changed life. 
in chapter 21, verse 3, days have passed since the crucifixion. And the disciples have already seen the resurrected Christ. But they don't seem to know what to do about it. Then Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he makes this announcement. He says, I'm going fishing. I don't know if you have any husband like that. I'm going fishing. To which a group of the disciples respond, we're going to go with you. So they head off. And it stands out here that when Peter first met Jesus, years prior to what we're reading today, Peter used to be a fisherman. This was, this was his profession. This is what he used to do. And now Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and Peter is oddly going back to his previous life. But what's strange is Peter has seen the resurrected Christ. He's, he's, he's met Jesus in his glorified body, seen him, encountered him. He's talked with Jesus and seen the holes in the, uh, from the nails in Jesus' hands. Peter has been an eyewitness to the dead raised. But today, despite all of that, it's fishing. And we're left, we're left wondering, well, maybe the resurrection, it, it wasn't as impactful as we first thought. So then Peter... And his friends, they spend the night out in the lake and they, they, they catch nothing, zilch, nada. And then from chapter, in chapter 21, verse 4 to 14, we get this beautiful record of Jesus appearing once again on the shore and telling the disciples to cast their nets one more time, which they do. And when they do, in verse 6, it says, there were so many fish caught that they could not pull the nets in. It says there were 153 fish and up until this point, even though it was Jesus, the disciples could not tell it was Jesus telling them to put the net in. But when the nets filled with fish, they knew, Peter knew. They knew this was the kind of entrance that Christ would make, miraculous, humorous, generous. So Peter in verse 7 stands up, he puts on his coat, maybe it was tweed, and he jumps into the water and begins to, to swim to Jesus. This is Peter being Peter, passionate and spontaneous and slow to think as he, as he wades out of the water in his coat. And it's the little details in this story that, that, that reveal this, not as fiction or myth, but as memory. 2,000 years ago, there was no literary form in existence that would have included random details and a piece of writing for no reason unless what was being written was historical. In first century fiction, every detail would have had meaning. And so the fact Peter put on his coat before jumping in the water and the fact they caught specifically 153 fish are details that because of their unimportance remind us that we're simply reading what somebody saw. Then in verse 12, Jesus invited the disciples to come have breakfast with him. And in verse 14, we are told that this is the third time Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples after he's raised from the dead, the third time. And again, we're kind of confused. It's nice that Jesus is having breakfast with his disciples, and there's a reminder here that Jesus, even as the resurrected king, the defeater of death, is still Jesus, the friend. Jesus is still approachable. Jesus still chooses to be relatable. He still likes fish for breakfast. But again, what about, the fact that, what about the impact of the resurrection on the lives of the disciples? Peter has seen, met, encountered the resurrected Christ now three times, and he's fishing, and he's making plans for brunch. 
Then we get to verse 15, which begins the passage that we read earlier. Verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, eating the fish that they just caught, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Do you love me more than these? There seems like a heavy question over breakfast on the beach. When Jesus says, Do you love me more than these? He, he isn't referring to the fish. He is referring to those that are around them. He's referring to the disciples, but, mo but most likely there was also other fishermen and other average folks out on the beach as well. Jesus and Peter are sitting by a fire in a public, public place. And Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me even more than everyone else that's here? And to us on first reading, and if we don't know more of Peter's story, we, may not, right not, we might not realize what is happening here, that Jesus is bringing to the surface Peter's past. Maybe you know what this is like when someone brings up a season of your life that you would rather forget. And you're hoping, please, please, please don't go there. Please don't go there. Please don't ask me that question. Please don't mention that. Hopefully they don't know. Jesus, he's not, he's not playing here with the, this conversation starter. Jesus is, is striking a core. Jesus is pushing buttons. In fact, what Jesus is doing is forcing Peter to look at himself. One of the reasons I think we don't want people to know everything about us is because we don't even want to know everything about us. Jesus is, is placing a mirror in front of Peter and saying, lift up your eyes and look at yourself. Look. Don't, don't suppress. Don't distract. Don't compare. Look at your past. Look at your failures. Look at your regrets. Look at your shame. Look at what you have done or what's been done to you. Look at what embarrasses you and makes you shudder. Look at yourself. Jesus has having Peter to see what Peter sees. Let me explain this in case you're wondering how am I deducing this from one question that Jesus is asking. Peter was always the most self-confident of Jesus' disciples. He was always the first to, to jump in, the first to say yes. He had, he had zeal and he had passion about him. And earlier in John's gospel, Jesus was telling his disciples that something was going to happen, which we now know was the crucifixion. And Jesus told the disciples that they were going to scatter and, and run and leave and abandon him alone. And for Peter, this was not fathomable. To Peter, he would never, never abandon Jesus. He couldn't conceive of not standing with Jesus, come what may, never. He says, referring to the other disciples, they, <coughs> they may fall away, <coughs> but me, <coughs> let's try one more time, <coughs> but me, oh, that's so much better, I will never, Peter said. To which Jesus responds, Peter One day before the rooster even crows, you will deny me. Not once, not twice, but before the day even gets started, 
you will have already disassociated yourself from me three times before the day started. Peter says, never. That's not me. That's not the kind of friend that I am. That's, That's not the kind of person that I am. Then comes the night of Jesus' arrest. When Jesus is taken from the garden of Gethsemane and he's brought to the high priest, the religious leaders wanted to plead their case as to why Jesus has blasphemed and why Jesus should be put to death. And in John chapter 18, we read that Peter follows. In the garden, he had this splurge of misguided courage and he cut off one of the soldier's ears. But now, rather than go into the court where Jesus was, Peter remains outside the door. And that's the first sign that something's off. And keeping an eye on the door is is a servant girl who asks, should you not be in there? Are you you not also one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter responds, I'm not. Then Peter moves on and he goes and stands to to warm himself by a fire. At this point in the early morning, people are probably beginning to prepare breakfast. Maybe the smell of fish is being grilled and is in the air when someone else says, hey, are you you one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? To which Peter responds, who, me? You must be getting me mixed up with somebody else. I'm, I'm not with Jesus. Then a servant of the high priest who has probably noticed that Peter is getting noticed asks, hey, yeah, did, did I not, I, I'm pretty sure I seen you this morning at the garden where Jesus was being arrested. You kind of made a little bit of a scene. To which Peter responds, that was not me. And as he finishes his final disassociation, as he proves his disloyalty and fulfills the betrayal, the rooster crows once, twice, three times. Matthew 23 says, and then Peter remembered the words of Jesus when Jesus said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter laughed and Peter wept. They may all fall away, but me, no, I'll never. And now days have passed since the night of Jesus' arrest. Peter is sitting by another fire staying warm in another public place with the smell of breakfast again in the air. And once again, three questions are being asked of him, which are really the same three questions that were asked of him before. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is bringing to the surface what Peter would rather forget. Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes and look. Look at your past, look at your failures, look at your shame, look at what embarrasses you and makes you squirm. And then we get Peter's response three times. Peter responds a whole lot less self-confident than is typical before him. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. With the final answer being, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So we ask, what's going on with this answer? What I think is so profoundly distinct in Peter's answer is that his emphasis is not on what he, be- he believes to be true. Peter's emphasis is rather on what Jesus knows to be true. 
Despite his, his previous betrayal, Peter knows he still loves Jesus, but what he emphasizes is that Jesus knows this. Do you see that? Why would, why would Peter do this? Every time Peter answers all three times, Peter says, you know, you know, you know. What matters is what you know. Before Peter was full of self-confidence, his outlook on life was confident in his own feelings, confident in his own conclusions, confident in who he was becoming, but something has changed. The point of reference on which his confidence is resting has changed. When asked about his love, his, his loyalty for Jesus, he grounds his answer not in what he perceives to be true within himself, he grounds his answer not in what he feels, no. He grinds his answer in what he knows, Jesus knows, to be true. And that might sound kind of nonsensical, but, but it isn't. Peter has learned that if he wants to give an answer that is most surely grounded in reality, his best bet is not to focus on what he knows, but on what Jesus knows. Church, when, when you want to be sure, when you want to be sure, to be sure, to be sure, don't go to yourself, don't go inside yourself. Why? Because when Peter denied his loyalty to Jesus, he became burdened with shame. Church, shame condemns and condemns and condemns. Every mistake is branded within us and becomes intertwined with what has been committed against us. And all we can do is try and not look or not listen. But what condemns us becomes a conviction within us. And we begin to see support for how we feel leading in from every billboard and every movie and every lens. You're alone. You're unlovable. You're ugly. You're hopeless. And so is it true? What is true? I mean, Peter did betray his friend I did get caught. I'm still doing it. I'm still stuck in it and nobody knows about it. But I know. Is this it then? Is our shame what will be ringing in our ears on our deathbeds? Will we be convicts imprisoned by our own convictions? Jesus' response to Peter would communicate that does not need to be the case. We aren't celebrating this morning for nothing. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter answers Jesus, you know I love you, you know I love you, you know I love you. Three times Jesus responds, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now we asked, did Jesus literally just zone out of this conversation and kind of step into another conversation? <laughs> Where did the sheep come from? Here's what Jesus means. He means, Peter, you're going to get another shot. Let me explain. By nature of Peter being a disciple of Jesus, he was being trained up to care for and lead those that would come to believe and follow in the way of Christ. He was being trained up to lead in the way of, as people came to follow Christ. The early church, in fact, was known as the way. 
And Jesus' intention was that Peter, the spontaneous, the slow to think, the quick-tempered, would continue to relay Jesus' teaching to future generations. That was the plan. But all that, that life, that future, was called into question when Peter denied Jesus. Peter has gone back fishing even after he's seen the risen Christ because he doesn't know if he can still live that life. If he can still live the life that he has failed to live. He, he doesn't know if restoration is possible. But when Jesus says, feed my sheep, Jesus is saying, I know what you have done in the past, but what you have done does not need to determine who you are going to become. Jesus is saying, Peter, you still have a future. But how can, how can Peter be sure? What if, he, what if he screws up again? How can Peter be sure of the outcome in the end? In the end? What if he, what if he relapses? How can he be so sure he won't lie on his deathbed convicted by his own convictions of regret and shame? Church, these next few verses paint one of the most beautiful pictures we have in the Bible of what Jesus can do with our lives when we give our lives to him. So in verse 18, Jesus keeps talking. And now Jesus speaks of the, he speaks of the future. He speaks of the future that he can only see. He says, truly, truly, which is Jesus' way of saying, with all authority vested in me. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19 says, this Jesus said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And what Jesus is telling Peter is that one day, in fact, and it occurred two decades, decades, decades later, Jesus saying, one day you will be taken and clothes that are not your own will be put on you. Uh, the freedom that you had when you were young, it, it'll no longer be yours. And your arms are going to be stretched out, Peter. And you're going to be crucified. That's what Jesus is telling him. And how in the world is this one of the most beautiful pictures of what Jesus can do with our lives? Friends, what did Peter really want? What did he really, really want to be true of himself? What made, what made him excited about the life that he was planning to live? That though all may fall away, although everyone will desert you, I will never. That was Peter's dream. That was the, the life that Peter longed to live, one of courage, not fear, one of honor, not shame. He wanted to live the life his betrayal had lost him. But do you, do you see this? Jesus is saying, it is still going to be yours. On your, on your deathbed, your shame is going to be turned to honor. Your fear is going to be turned to courage. Your sadness is going to be turned to joy. Truly, truly, with all of the authority vested in me as the Son of God, Peter, despite your betrayal of me, one day there will be another day. With the crowds, they will pressure you again to betray me. And you know what, Peter? You won't give in. With all authority vested in me as the resurrected king, I am telling you the life you long to live, it will be granted to you. What your own betrayal stole from you, I assure you will be restored to you. 
Church, nobody sets out to become an addict. Nobody sets out to suffer from depression or mental illness. Nobody sets out to be unsure of their worth. Nobody sets out to be drowned in debt. Nobody sets out for their marriage to break down. Nobody sets out to see their kids forget about them. Nobody sets out to be alone. But we all, in one way or another, end up where we wish we weren't. We sometimes wish we were people that we wish we weren't. And yet, what we are celebrating this morning is that where we have ended up is not the end. Peter's story has two halves, and what stands in the middle of his story is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is not just a turning point in Jesus' life, but can be a turning point in your life, in our lives. The resurrection is the moment that divided history, but why it is an explanation for transformation is that the resurrection brought the power of restoration into our lives. Jesus, when Jesus was hung up on that cross, he went to the end of our shame. He went to the end of it. He traveled to the outcome of our addictions. He dredged the depths of our depression. He heard the voices of despair that are our feelings. He went to our deathbed of conviction. He died a convict, convicted not of his own sin and shame, but of ours. And as the stone was rolled over the entrance to the borrowed tomb, Jesus' life ended as ours should. He died, his last breath breathed with all of our regrets ringing in his ears. But when that stone began to roll away and a new breath was breathed, the love of God was proved stronger than death. The battle was won, the power of death and sin and our shame was defeated. And when Jesus rose, listen church, he rose with gifts to give. He rose with gifts to give back to those that had betrayed him. He rose to give back what sin had taken from the world, from us. And so, how do we now live with ourselves? Number one, when life strips us of our confidence and shame and guilt still knocks on our door, we don't grind ourselves on what we know because what we know is often wrong. We lie to ourselves, but we remind ourselves of what Jesus knows. Jesus went to the cross because he knows he loves you. He knows that you're of worth. He knows you're of value. He knows you're forgiven. He knows your future is not determined by your failures. He knows that you are his. Even when you forget, he knows. And there is nothing more grounded in reality than what Jesus knows. When you don't know how to live with yourself, listen to the words and the voice of Jesus. Number two, how do we now, in light of the resurrection, live with ourselves? When we give our lives to Jesus, the power of the resurrection enters into our present and begins restoration when? Today. Every mistake, sin, or failure that has brought you to this moment, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, immediately begins to work for your good. Did you hear that? Every mistake, every sin, every failure that has brought you to this moment today, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, immediately begins to work for your good. No weapon, 
no weapon no weapon of evil even if you wield that weapon against yourself can be used against you God takes what you regret and begins to conform it to his good will to be used in the process of making you who you are becoming in Christ that is resurrection power which is a power from the future that will be fully revealed in the life to come we accept the life that we have today knowing that resurrected life is coming a life when you will never miss a moment a life when you will never carry a regret a life in which you will never be alone a life where you never again will betray your savior church your shame is going to be turned to honor your fear is going to be turned to courage your sadness is going to be turned to joy the life you long to live will be granted to you what your what your own betrayal stole from you i assure you will be restored to you that is resurrection power that's what we're celebrating today let's pray god we come before you god with hearts of wonder of what you're doing in our lives those moments god where matches are struck in the dark where we see that there is a deeper reality God, I pray, God, as we are here in your midst this morning, God, that we would see you with clarity. God, I say, pray that belief would be stirred in our souls, that you are here and you are calling us to yourself. God, I pray, God, if there is people here and they are suffering and they are struggling, I pray, God, that they will know that there is hope. There is hope today that every pain, every problem in their life, when they give it to Jesus, will be used for their good. And God, I pray, God, that we will know that one day we will see Jesus face to face and all doubts and all misbeliefs and unbelief will be swept away. We look forward to that day. We live for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.